Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to take a closer look at the Education Department after a series of recent flashpoints is Robin Walker, Conservative MP and former Minister for School Standards, who now chairs the Commons Education Select Committee, as well as Dr Patrick Roach, General Secretary of the Teaching Union, the NAS UWT, and Laura McInerney, Education Journalist, Schools Expert and the co-founder of TeacherTap, which surveys 10,000 teachers every day on key issues. So I'm going to start with a little quiz question. It's you know it's a teachable moment. Let's start by asking. I'll start with you, Laura, actually, because you've got a database ranking past education secretaries and and, a, and you've got a card game even that you can buy about them. Let's start. Can we name the five people who are education secretary in 2022? Who was who was the first one? Do you need all of them? They're just the first the first one. I can think of Nadim Zahawi. Great, uh, Robin. Who who was who took over from Nadim? Um, I'll probably get this wrong now. Kit Mottlehouse? That's one of them, but not, not you've, you've missed not the next one. You've missed two there. Patrick? Gosh. Uh, Nadim handed over to. Oh, gosh. This is the perils. No, it was, it was, it was Michelle Donnellan who had the job for, for, for one Michelle, day. Good remember. <laughs> uh, and then we were on to uh, James Cleverly, then Kit Malthouse, and on finally on to. To Gillian Keegan, the, the current one. And, and I know that in the department, they've got uh, portraits of all the education secretaries. I imagine the framer was working double time, obviously, last last year. And I just wondered, Robin, you know, on a serious note, what, what does it you know, what does it mean when you have a department like that, when you have kind of such chopping and changing? It obviously has some massive effect on, on performance, I think, when we look at some of the things that the education department's done now. I, I think any department seeing that level of disruption is going to be a challenge. I think in some respects, you know, Department for Education has seen greater consistency than many, of course, with Nick Gibb being in post for so long and returning to post so many times. And I always describe him as my, my predecessor and successor. Obviously, there were quite a few people in between. But, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think on a serious note, clearly, it's not good for government to, in any way when you have that much change in that short a period of time. I do think that hopefully the policy in most respects has been consistent, but that the, uh, you know, clearly it's better to have a Secretary of State who can get well established, get to know the sector well and build those relationships, which are really important to running a, a major department like this. Yeah. Yeah, and Patrick, then obviously your union's been in dispute over various things with the, with, with the government over the past year or so. You know, what's it meant having to try and deal with all those various education secretaries? You, can't, you know, couldn't remember one of them because they were there and gone so quickly. What's that kind of meant for the those relationships that you've been trying to do as you're trying to deal with those the disputes you've had with your members and, and the government? Well, being flippant, I mean, you know, my, uh, my uh, fountain pen has been working overtime right into uh, welcome incoming secretaries of state. Yeah, well, uh, you can just copy and paste you these days. You don't have to write them all out. You know, you can if you wanted to. Indeed, indeed. Thankfully, at least we've had a a, a degree of stability uh, since uh, Gillian's uh, appointment as Secretary of State. Uh, I mean, it has to be said. I mean, I do agree with you know Robin's point about you know uh, when you are chopping and changing, that can create issues, and I think it has created issues. I think we've seen policy lurching around. We've seen policy that hasn't actually progressed in the way that it should should have done. We saw, you know, an education white paper, which effect all but stalled in reality. We saw a new education secretary coming in at just the point when, you know, um, the arguments that should have been being 
built to the Treasury about better funding for the sector were not necessarily being made. I thought Gillian did do a job to secure additional funding from the Treasury. I think we also had to do a job in putting pressure on Conservative MPs um, to secure that commitment to additional, additional funding. But we've had to fight every single step of the way for it. And of course, What's happened to the profession during this period is when the profession has been faced with uncertainty, the anxiety, and actually demoralisation, which I don't think successions of secretaries of state have helped to actually address. Yeah, Laura, bringing you on this, obviously, is that something that you've picked up from teachers that you survey, that kind of, again, the, the lack of maybe leadership from having repeated changes at the secretary of state level, has that helped necessarily with things like morale and dealing in the last couple of, uh, last couple of weeks? No, as, as Patrick says, the level of uncertainty goes up when you lurch from policy to policy. But we've also seen this poverty of ambition, really. Where you've got, at the beginning of the coalition coming in in 2010, one education secretary for quite a long time in Michael Gove for nearly, you know, over four years, he'd had time in opposition to really think through what he wanted to do. Now, like it or love what he did, he came in, he did a lot of things, everybody knew the direction. Really, since 2015, there's not been a lot of direction. And it means that some of the big issues that need to be tackled aren't being, because nobody has had time to think about them before they get in. They get landed with a load of briefs that they've got to suddenly deal with, and they don't have time to think about where they go. And the biggest uh, standout on this is special educational needs. There has been huge reform in the last 10 years, brought in in that early stages, that's really not gone very very well. We've got massively expanding expenditure, got lots and lots of dissatisfaction and a massive postcode lottery in terms of provision. None of that is being grasped. And although Robin is right, there's been one really schools minister for a lot of the last 13 years, there's been endless numbers of people who are in the children's family and special needs brief. I mean, I think it's something like 10 or 11 just in the last 18 months. And so things that need to be dealt with are not being. Yeah, Robin, obviously we'll come on to kind of the, the big kind of crisis at the moment with, with, with Rack and stuff. And do you think that, you know, Gillian Keegan obviously has inherited that. It's not necessarily her problem. It's not necessarily maybe the, her, his, her predecessor's problems. It's kind of come over. But do you think that, you know, she's done enough to, to grapple with it? Has her response been better or worse perhaps than, than some of her predecessors might have, might have done? I think clearly it's becoming clear that something changed over the summer that has changed the department's appetite for risk on that. And I think you know, most of us would recognise it is sensible to take a very low risk approach when you are talking about the risk of buildings collapsing on children. Clearly, that's a decision that she's had to take based on the information she's been given. I think what we now need to see is a real focus there on implementation that minimises the disruption for schools, that supports school leaders and and makes it very clear that they're not going to have to bear the budgetary cost of dealing with this issue. That's something that we'll be pushing on in our session next week when we have Diana Barron and Susan Ackland Hood coming before the committee to talk about RAC. But we also need to know who knew what, where, uh, when, because I think it is really important that we have the reassurance that action was taken as quickly as it could possibly have been. That, That is what the department are telling us. But I think we'll want to go into the detail of that. It was slightly disappointing, I have to say, that the Permanent Secretary wasn't able to tell the Public Accounts Committee how many mobile classrooms they've provided over the the few weeks since this has happened. And I think that's something, again, that we'll want to see more detail on when we uh, get the ESE. But by and large, I think people are willing to give Gillian the, the benefit of the doubt that she's taken the right decision on this. And it's now about getting the implementation right and getting it right quickly. I just agree with something Laura said about the, the SEN challenge. And I think the frustration there is not necessarily that the policy isn't in place. I think the, the green paper and then 
the command paper that the government published have been welcomed in many respects, but it's, it's, it's all about implementation. It's all about getting a system to work effectively together. And I think the great concern is that we have you know, pretty much every local authority in the country running a major high needs deficit. There is a real need for investment in special educational needs places, in, in specialist places and in mainstream schools. And I think the pressures that we see are, are very immediate in that respect. There's been an enormous increase in fairness to the government. And they will keep saying that there has been an enormous increase in the spending on, on high needs. And, and that's impossible to argue against. But I think the need is growing even faster. Yeah. Every school I talk to, whether they're mainstream schools or specialist ones, are very clear about the rising level of need and complexity. Uh, and therefore, that does need real focus. And certainly, it would be very welcome to see ministers staying in place for a longer period of time in that space. Yeah. Pa- Patrick, what do you think of the, of the response from, from the government and from the DfE to the to the RAC stuff? I'm reading about one a school governor who said that the DfE provided phone numbers for engineers, but you know none were available, and, and there's obviously been a, a rush to kind of get these mobile classrooms in place. What have what you kind of made of the response overall since, since this kind of broke? Well, I mean, the response from, you know, our members out there in schools as teachers, as middle leaders, as head teachers, has been incredible. Once again, they've had to turn on a sixpence, as they did when schools were uh, mainly closed during the pandemic. Those schools that received the call, um, as uh, perhaps they thought, you know, enjoy the rest of what's remaining of this summer holiday, to find that they've got to put in place almost from the ground up, you know, an alternative set of arrangements. It was pretty outrageous, the suggestion that head teachers needed to get off their backsides. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that I've never known a profession that's worked harder over a sustained period. Even the government's own data says that, you know, head teachers working hours in excess of 60 hours a week, you know, is testimony to that. The government's response, and, and by the way, I'm not personalising this to Gillian Keegan. There may be some of my members that would think I should, but but I'm not going to do that. Uh, if Gillian's listening, I'm not going to sit here and flatter or praise her either. I think this is a problem of the government's making, if I may, and the government has to take responsibility for the situation that we find ourselves in with regard to RAC. I absolutely agree with what Robin had to say. It is about investment. It is about implementation. It's absolutely crucial now that we have a plan and a timetable for implementation, both in terms of surveying schools that might be impacted by Iraq, but also in terms of fixing uh, the problem uh, in schools. That's really, really important. And even if that takes two years, five years, 10 years, it's important that we know what the situation is going to look like. Mobile classrooms, alternative settings for some some pupils, remote education. Frankly, children and young people deserve better than that. We've asked Julian Keegan to respond to a number of questions. Still waiting to hear from her. And frankly, that has been the tenor of government's engagement on RAC, on workforce matters, on a raft of other issues that has simply got to change. Looking at the kind of the investment law over, over the years, I was, I was reading a, there was an old interview that Michael Gove did with I think Andrew Marr back in 2016, where he admitted that that cancelling the the schools building program in 2010 was a massive mistake, his biggest mistake as as education secretary. Is that where you put some of this down to the kind of cancelling of that investment program? Then, or does it go back further? You know, where do we kind of see this? Obviously, we've seen Labour trying to make a lot of hay this last week about you know, maybe Rishi Sunak not 
improving the investment in infrastructure. But where do you think it kind of the, the sort of if there is blame, where does it lie? Do you think? I mean, I think a bet was made in 2010, essentially, when the coalition came in and went for austerity. That if you cut back at that moment in time for a few years, the economy would reset itself, and then once we all had cash, we could kind of pile back in again. Unfortunately, when you do that with buildings, if your bet doesn't pull off, then what actually happens is like what happened to the school I was in. It's, it's useful life. It ended about 2002. We were six weeks away from having a new school built that got cancelled of course you've not then maintained it for about eight years because you think you're going to get a new building and for the next 10 13 years now on what's happened is the government have reduced the amount of capital spend and they've sort of hung it out each year they've said to people you can bid for a little pot of cash and we might give it to you so people keep bidding and they keep bidding and they're not maintaining and the school is getting worse and now we're in a situation where very specifically on rack for about 150 schools it's caught up with them but it's actually bigger than that mm. we know from teach tap surveys that in 2019, 40% of teachers told us there was a leaking roof somewhere in their school. We know in the last couple of weeks that 12% of teachers say there's at least one classroom that isn't usable in their school because of maintenance. And of course, the bet didn't pull off. We're now 13 years later. We don't have more money. It's much more expensive to do things and everything's in a worse state. And that's unfortunately just where we are. Right. And so obviously I saw a story this week from The Times suggesting that the minister's looking to order nearly a thousand pre-prefacated buildings. You know, how big do you think this necessarily could be? We've got 150 at the moment. You know, where do you think it kind of could go? Well, we have to remember that we also have um, some other things happening in schools as well. So we've actually got secondary schools expanding quite rapidly. A lot of children were born in the kind of 2010 era, which means that secondary schools have got a big push and a bunch of primary schools had already had to expand. So the temporary classrooms is something that people deal with it's not great but it is something that can be done we've done it in the past and as long as it is temporary and as long as there are plans to rebuild everyone copes what's bad is if you look at some schools that have had temporary classrooms now for maybe 20 years and they've not been rebuilt and the temporary classrooms are leaking and falling apart <laughs> right. and they're really expensive to heat which of yeah, course when we were being cold, hit having, having been exactly. in, yeah worked on them yeah so you're getting hit with energy prices as some schools have been over the last couple of years it just all adds to it so unfortunately i think there was a bad bet made um, and no wonder Michael Gove now regrets it, but we've all got to live with the consequences. And I hope the Department for Education can figure out how they are going to fund this so that it, we can get on and get it fixed. Yeah, Robin, as you mentioned, you're going to be, your committee is going to be looking at, at this next week. And what are the kind of things you're hoping to get from the ministers in front, in front of you? I think, first of all, we need the assurance that given action needed to be taken according to the department, we, you know, they took the action as quickly as they could have done. It's incredibly frustrating that this hit head teachers and leaders in the last week of the holidays, just before schools returned. And that has definitely led to more disruption than would otherwise have been necessary. So we need to understand what changed when and why they took this decision, how long it took to take the decision and that sort of thing. Secondly, I think we need to make sure that uh, lessons have been learned for the long run. I asked at the PAC the other day about how do we make sure that we don't have public buildings built with life-limited materials in the future. We need to make sure that the guidance is changing so that we don't have this, this kind of issue arising in the future. We need to have a focus on minimising the disruption to schools. We've been focused a lot as the Select Committee on dealing with persistent absence, trying to deal with getting children back into school. The last thing we want is children being educated remotely for any length of period of time or schools not and school buildings not being available. So we we want to try and understand what the plan is, how they're operating that, what they're doing in terms of providing those mobile classrooms, which I know some of our colleagues from Essex have particularly raised concerns about, and some of the timescales involved there. And also to make sure that this isn't coming at the expense of necessary school capital elsewhere. 
because it is really important if the department does step in on this, it's providing help with surveying and with, with other things, but it's not coming out of a school capital budget, which is very much needed. Now, just in terms of, it is worth pointing out that the Building Schools for the Future programme was secondary only, and that many of the schools have been affected like this. Yeah, are primary schools. Yeah. Many of the schools with the highest condition need are, are primary schools. And, and I think it is really important that we make sure the right support is available to those schools which don't necessarily have big building management teams and don't necessarily have the support, recognising that the 20... 2,000 school buildings are, are across a very different mix of organisational structures. And I think some of the, the Secretary of State's frustration, which we've all heard vocally expressed, was focused on the so-called responsible bodies. Uh, but actually, those responsible bodies vary enormously in terms of their capacity to deal with these things. So we need to make sure the department has a really good plan in place to support them. So there's a lot of questions to ask. We've got guests coming from the DWP committee who are also interested in this from a working perspective and also from the PAC who are following this issue on a cross-government basis. I'm hopeful that it'll be a, a good session to hold ministers to account. I've been watching very carefully the whips because I think there was some concern that the parliamentary session may not carry on until Tuesday. Um, uh, as far <laughs> as I can see, it definitely is. And so I'm looking forward to that meeting. Uh, Patrick, as you kind of alluded to, it couldn't really have come at a worse time, you know, post-pandemic and all the issues that created for, for educators and for schools and, and for pupils. You know, schools closed uh, again and another new term disrupted. I just wondered, you know, what it's kind of done, you know, again for for your members and what you kind of think, you know, the, the government can do to try and pull it back given another, another term has started with this kind of terrible disruption? Without a doubt, there's a deep sense of anger across the profession. Uh, it's not as if these, uh, the issue of RAC or indeed the issue of the lack of uh, proper building maintenance, repair, refurbishment of school buildings, the state of disrepair hasn't been known for some time. It has been known. And, um, you know, various bodies have commented on that, uh, trade unions, the NHWT included. There's just been a, a sense in which does the government care? Does the government care enough to actually put this this right? You know, Laura quite rightly said, you know, perhaps the government took a bit of a chance, took a bit of a risk, and it didn't pay off. But this is children's education. They only get one chance. What teachers are feeling, the teachers and head teachers across the country are saying, but these kids on roll today, they get one chance. And this is the best that we can offer to them, that we're letting these children down and letting down potentially a generation of young people doesn't square with, you know, the ethos of the within the profession. So, you know, it is a, 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 glad that Robin and his committee is holding the DFE to account and asking some really, I think, pertinent questions, not least, you know, who knew what and when. Yeah. But also, you know, this is a cross-government issue. Where do children and young people sit in the government's league table of priorities? Because to be perfectly honest, they need to be right at the very top of the government's list well, of this is, priorities. This is going to come on to, because obviously yeah, the government got their five pledges. Education and, and children don't really sit with anywhere those those five pledges and stuff. And so we'll, we'll come on to that in, in a little bit. But well, I just, you know... I, Actually, I'd argue education education is absolutely crucial to the economy, Brett. Well, yeah. Uh, okay, sure. also said it's the closest thing to a silver bullet we have when it comes to productivity. So, uh, okay, I, I accept that. I don't know if that's necessarily cut across necessarily to, to the wider public. But uh, Patrick, early in the year, you, you said you um, you got a massive mandate for industrial action. Obviously, you know what was kind of the reasons behind that, and what do you kind of want to see from from negotiations with government? Is it you know is it you know it's not just about pay? I guess it's also about recruitment and retention and, and morale. That was going to come on to, to Laura to talk about as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, just on that on that last point, I mean, I take Robin's point about the economy, but it's about much more than that. You know, there's a behaviour crisis in our schools. There's a massive issue about children missing education. There's a safeguarding issue. Laura's mentioned about SEND. You know, there are so many big issues affecting the the quality of life for children and young people. But coming back to our our dispute with the government, yeah, it is about more than just pay. Although pay is a big issue. See, teachers have seen the value of their pay in, in real terms falling by around 25%. But we also know from the work that we do, our own big question survey, and also from the work that you know Laura has done uh, through TeacherTab, that workload, working time, and teacher well-being is a really, really important part of the equation here. And so our dispute is focused on pay, on workload and on working time. And we're saying the government needs to do more to address teachers' concerns around workload and working time. You know, Julian Keegan put to us a package of measures accepting the STRB 6.5% and some non-pay changes. We consulted our members on that. Our members welcome as far as the government has gone on the non-pay uh, agenda, but don't believe the government has yet gone far enough with the urgency that's needed. We're seeing record numbers of teachers leaving the profession. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of teachers say to us in our big question survey that they've seriously considered leaving the profession altogether in the last 12 months. We've got record numbers of uh, vacancies. The government is missing its ITT, initial teacher training recruitment targets in primary and in secondary. We have a crisis which is impacting on the workforce, but frankly, we don't have a plan to fix it. We don't have a plan to fix the workforce crisis. And that's what I'm saying to, well, I'd like to say to Gillian Keegan, if I can get some time with her. I know she's occupied with the rack issue at the moment, but to be perfectly honest, Gillian Keegan needs to make this her priority, not least ahead of a general election, because there are votes in this. <laughs> Teachers do vote. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, Laura, just on that kind of the teacher morale thing, is that something that you've picked up? Is it, have you noticed a, a shift over the past couple of years? And is that the kind of the major issue, things like retention and stuff, is that the kind of the, the biggest issue that you see from people that you survey? Yeah, so we were surveying before the pandemic from 2017 through the pandemic and now. And we can say very clearly that the figures look different before the pandemic to now. So on simple things like people saying they'll still be in the profession in three years' time, we've seen the number thinking that drop quite dramatically. Um, even just at the beginning, of the year we ask how optimistic people are about the year and you used to have about 80% feeling optimistic and now it's somewhere around the kind of 60 55% so you've just seen a, a general feeling of dropped morale as Patrick said that is in part to do with pay and in to do with workload but also the pay thing is complicated teachers obviously do want more money to put back the kind of losses that they've had in real time since 2010 but we also see real concern that they don't want that cash to be taken from other aspects of the school budget because they're very very worried about broader services um, we last week got teachers to do this very complicated thing but it enabled us to rank some of Labour's planned policies on education and the top three that came out were all about things they've said on mental health for young people right. so actually a big big concern is are there mental health workers? Are there enough special educational needs specialists? Are the buildings okay? Do we have enough teaching assistance? So it's not just about themselves, it's about the environment. And I think we're seeing something similar in nurses, actually. When the nurses are talking about their pay, they're not just talking about their own pay, they're talking about the quality of service that they can deliver on the ground day in and day out. And that is the thing that makes a difference to teachers' morale because it makes a difference to the kids and that's why they're there. So it's about overarching investment in a variety of different 
ways. And it is why having a plan, even if it is about the economy, I take Robin's point, but a plan which is a bit more specific, a bit more visionary, and just a bit more pleasant to feel like every day you're getting up and you're going into work in an environment where, where things are getting a bit better rather than every day they're getting worse. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, we've been doing an inquiry on teacher recruitment and retention, and it is really crucial that the retention piece is the most important part of that. If you recruit people into a sort of leaky bucket, you're always going to be running to catch up. It is vital that we that we do, and I'd agree with some of those priorities that Laura set out. We we need we do need more mental health support. We're about to publish our inquiry on the our report on the persistent absence issue, and it's very clear that mental health and special educational needs not being met are some of the major drivers of children being out of school. We need to, 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 to get more support in those areas, which will make teachers' lives easier and raise morale. So these are all priorities. I, I, I think it is really crucial that we work with the profession. In fairness, I think Patrick and his members and uh, have helped the department to make the case to the Treasury for more money. And we are seeing record levels of spending, at least in revenue terms, in terms of education. But is there more to do? Absolutely, yes. Mm. Patrick, it was interesting that Robin mentioned there the Treasury and the role of the Treasury. There's been a lot of, you know, suggesting that essentially it's the the hand of the Treasury behind a lot of the kind of the failure to invest. And perhaps there was obviously the, the Kevin Collins review and the kind of into investing in education sector post-pandemic. Do you think that there has been the, the, repeatedly from the Treasury, from various chancellors, one of whom is now in number 10, you know, do you think that that's where a lot of the problems have come from in, in those kind of lack of investment that we've seen and perhaps the, the stopping of, of pay rewards that you, you think your members have, have deserved? I think the reality is we've never seen the end of austerity since 2010. Despite, you know, some of the rhetoric we've heard from government, austerity has always been with us. I mean, the reality is that teachers have seen pay in real terms fall off the edge of the cliff. I mean, research which we commissioned from Incomes Data Services identified that teaching was in the relegation zone, both primary and secondary teaching in the relegation zone when it came to graduate pay. We've seen levels of capital investment which have declined and uh, actually capital pots have been raided to shore up revenue spending. We've seen school budgets um, squeezed in real terms. The pressures on schools have never been greater than they are today. But as Robin was saying earlier, frankly, finances just haven't kept pace with, with that. So schools have been dealing with austerity as the reality. And that is not the kind of environment that builds confidence for teachers and for head teachers, um, because the job just gets more difficult by the day. And we're seeing higher levels of stress and anxiety, higher levels of burnout and early premature leaving the, prof- the profession. So, so there's a real challenge, which I think this government has got to face up to, but actually will be a big issue for the next general election because governments need to, whichever party is in government after the general election, that's the crisis they're going to be inheriting and they're going to have to have some answers to that, starting with a very clear plan for teachers and the wider workforce in our schools. Yeah, Laura, have you, have you, have you, you, mentioned, you spoke to teachers about what their priorities were on, on policy going forward. I wondered if you picked up anything about teachers' reaction to the policies that Labour have put forward necessarily to either tackle with the, the RAC issue 
or with other issues within education? So we just put forward the policies that Labour had in their recent mission documents. They put out this breaking down barriers to opportunity and then got them to rank those. Of it, uh, mental health was by far at the top. Then actually they were very up for free primary breakfast clubs. Again, going to the fact that teachers are just very worried about the impact of austerity on the children that they're in, yeah. um, let alone not everything even, not else. Not even the teaching of them, just the, like, right. actually their, their but, well-being. But trying to teach hungry children who've been in wet clothes because it couldn't be dried at home, who are worried about when they get home that night, whether or not someone's going to be knocking on the door to come and collect debts. These are very complicated things and they want them solved. I'm a little bit around Ofsted that they would like to see. And then, of course, the private school VAT stuff starts to kick in some way down the line. But right. I guess that's because you've got to try and pay for some of these things as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ofsted's another way. We can have a whole a whole other episode on, on Ofsted and, and kind of the, the reforms around that. I just finally from, from you, Patrick, then, as you say, we're going into election. We talked about Labour's policies there you know what do you want to see from the DfE if they've got 12 months say to an election what do you if they're to, if they're to win over teachers votes if they're to win around people in the education profession and, and and obviously parents as as well you know what do you kind of want to see from them what do you want to see from Gillian Keegan she might not be to to blame for some of those issues we talked about but she's certainly the one in the hot seat for the time being to try and deal with them well whether the government in the next 12, 13 months can fix the problems of the last uh, 12, 13 years is, a, is, I think, a really interesting question. But I think government can make some steps in the right direction. And it's incumbent upon government now to engage with the profession properly, starting with that engagement with, with trade unions. One of the interesting things that emerged out of the summer negotiations in respect of teachers' pay was the establishment of a workforce workload reduction task force uh, by the DfE, where ministers and indeed trade unions will be sitting down and talking about the measures that may be implemented. I would like to see that broadened out uh, by government. I mean, as Laura said earlier, I think we need government with, to show some ambition. It might feel a little bit late in the day, but I think it would help. It would go some way. Um, but I certainly want to see how all parties set out their priorities for education and specifically for teachers, because at the end of the day, one of the lessons from the pandemic was you can't deliver great education for children and young people without teachers in the classroom. It starts there, it finishes there. It's really, really important that any future government puts teachers and education at the top of their general election priorities just be glad you're not housing experts because there have been 15 housing ministers in 13 years so you'd have to name you'd have to have named 50 all 15 of them that's all we've got time for this week but you can read all the latest on the big stories from westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven day a week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. thanks to my brilliant guests laura McInerney, robin walker and dr patrick roach thanks to you all again for listening please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review if you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. Mm-hmm.